And ladies and gentlemen, he's one of the all-time greats, my buddy, Mr. John Wayne. You're listening to the John Wayne Gritcast with me, Ethan Wayne. The hell I was We'll be discussing the life and legacy of my father. John Wayne. Mr. John Wayne. John Wayne is the United States of America. Slap some bacon on a biscuit and let's go. Hey, Red, thank you for joining us today. I am so proud to be here, Ethan. Well, we're lucky to have you. Sit down, Finn. Um, you know, this is the John Wayne Gritcast, so obviously we, we like to look back to people who knew him and, and get John Wayne's stories, but Red, you're, you're a legend in the Western world, and we'd like to know a little bit about you uh, to start, you know, where um, you started, how you got into so deep into Western culture, whether it's being a cowboy, uh, music, poetry, gatherings. I mean, you were, you know, your statues out in front of this building. <laughs> well, it, it all started uh, with the way I grew up. And I grew up in a little bitty town named Sanford out on the Canadian River, uh, north of Amarillo, about 40 miles. And it was a, uh, an oil field town. We had three carbon black plants. We had a gasoline plant and a natural gas plant. So it was all oil field people, but it was in the middle of a big ranch. And a fellow named Max Sanford had been a cowboy and had uh, worked as a, as a cowboy and then started saving his money and invested in a few wells and hit good ones and became a very successful oil man. And he bought that ranch uh, in about 1936. And uh, Borger was just a blip on the map. It didn't, didn't hardly have any people in it at all. Sanford was a little bit larger, and it might have had 75 or 80 people in it. But uh, Max Sanford developed that ranch, and uh, then he died early on. And the little town where I grew up, the, the Cowboys' headquarters was quite a ways over in Carson County. And they didn't have trailers and pickups in those days. They'd trail their horses and trail the chuck wagon. And they had come through our little town because the only road that went down into the, the river bottom came through town. And with, so with a chuck wagon, like yeah. pulled by mules, and yeah. then all the horses are strung behind? Yes. Wow. And so, as little boys, there weren't but about three or four of us the same age, but we'd stand on the side of the road and dream of times we could go with those cowboys down into that river bottom and work those wild cattle. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> then over, about 13 miles was the Four Sixes Ranch, which was a large one. Mm. And that was our, all of our dreams, was to be a cowboy on the Four Sixes. But we didn't have any horses. We didn't have any way to learn the skills of, of a cowboy. So we grew up living on, on that river bottom. We'd leave on Friday afternoon and come back Sunday night and go airhead hunting all up and down that river and explore uh, old Indian dwellings and places where uh, Pueblos had been. And, it was an idyllic life. And then in the wintertime, I'd trap coyotes and bobcats and catch a skunk occasionally. Wow. But it was, a, it was an outdoors life, and I, all I ever wanted to be was, was a cowboy. Uh, when I was 15, I had polio, and I lost the use of my left shoulder. So I, my life had to take a different direction. I was also uh, starting at left end on an all-state football team at Phillips High School. Wow. And so I wanted to be a, a football player and a veterinarian. That was my, my big deal. <clears throat> but after polio and I had to change, I went to school down at West Texas A&M 
uh, what is now West Texas A&M, and studied agriculture, and uh, realized that I couldn't be a large animal vet with one arm. And so I just got a degree in animal science and agronomy and went to work in the ag chemical field and spent about five years doing that. But all that time I had taught myself how to play guitar and I, I can't use this arm, so I just hang my thumb on the top of the neck and play open chords. Wow. So that's how I've gotten by for 55 years. Do you cover the top string? Do you ever mute no. it? No. No. I just, I learned how to do that, keep wow. it out of the way. And uh, then I started writing some songs when I got to college and I had some friends uh, who made it big in the music business. Uh, fellow named Jimmy Bowen, who's still alive and was one of the great producers of all time. Don Lanier, who grew up in our little town. And a fellow named Buddy Knox. Had a group called Buddy Knox and the Rhythm Orchids. And they had seven number one records in a row. Really? And so uh, when Buddy got drafted in the Korean War, then Donnie came back to Amarillo and we played together and, and uh, played some dances together and tried to write songs and and so Jimmy went on to Hollywood and uh, he got a job working for Frank Sinatra at Reprise Records. And he was producing Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and Keely Smith and wow. Buddy Greco and a bunch of really big, big bands. And so Donnie went out to help him out uh, with a, as a union contractor because we only had four tracks in those days. And so then they called me and, and I was uh, assistant sales manager of the Ag Division of an oil company. And uh, I just decided I wanted to go to Hollywood. So I had a brand new 64 Super Sports Impala convertible. Oh, nice. And I hooked a 507 U-Haul trailer up behind it and I went to California. That's cool. And uh, just worked myself through. Uh, Did you end up like in Hollywood proper there? <clears throat> I lived in North Hollywood. North Hollywood. And Donnie and I shared a, uh, an apartment. Jimmy had gotten married to Keely Smith by the time we got there. And uh, Donnie and I wrote a song called Here We Go Again that I got Ray Charles to record. Mm -hmm. So my songwriting career was kicked off and I had a lot of luck uh, writing songs. And then I decided I wanted to sing my own songs. So I started recording and my first top 10 record went into the charts in uh, January of 1969. So that was what, 53 years ago. And I had a great, great career in, in uh, honky-tonk and western swing music. Wow. And uh, we like to say that 1985 was the year sad songs and waltzes quit selling. <laughs> and uh, I heard about a, a poetry gathering in Elko, Nevada. So I went out there and watched those guys recite their poetry, hear their thoughts about the West and how they loved it and what it was all about and uh, decided that that's where my heart really was. And I still play dances even to this day, but oh. I, I spend most of my time in the Western world. And I started writing poetry. I'd never written poetry before 1985. And uh, it's been a real blessing, and I continue to do that. How did you cross paths with my family? Uh, was it when you were in North Hollywood? When, when I first got to Hollywood, was the formation of the uh, Academy of Country and Western Music. Okay. And people like Gene Autry and Roy Rogers and Rex Allen, uh, 
Jimmy Wakeley, Eddie Dean, Tex Williams, all those guys were the founders of that organization. And your dad was part of that founding of that organization, but he didn't make the meetings like everybody else did. And I went to every one of those meetings and those people became my best friends. And so uh, there was a fellow named Billy Zell who was doing a record with your dad. And my office was down across the street from the Capitol Tower on Yucca. And he came to my office one morning to talk about something else. He said, by the way, I'm gonna record uh, the Duke today. You wanna come down and watch me? And I said, sure, sure. And I was in awe. And I sat across the table from him and watched him do one of those songs. And, and I don't have any idea which one it was, Ethan, but it was one of the things on that album. And I was so, well, I was infatuated. I was intimidated. I couldn't say hi. I couldn't shake his hand. And here I'd been working with Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. And one of my best friends was, was uh, Glenn Campbell and Mike Davis, and Kenny Rogers, oh my gosh. you know. I was around superstars, but there were two people that I just couldn't talk to. He was one of them. The other one was, uh, uh, what these days I want to climb that mountain. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and in fact, uh, I wrote a song that he recorded called Rockin' Sarah Trucker, and I got to stand beside him, uh, Walter Brennan, Walter when, Brennan. when he was recording it and show him where to come in and you know how to, how to pace it. But uh, I couldn't talk to him. I just, wow. he said, come in and tell me how to do this. <laughs> so, we, we had the 50th anniversary of the Cowboys uh, last night here in this room, and then uh, this year's the 50th anniversary also of America Why Lover. And America Why Lover was something that when I came in, I spent a lot of time trying to find and collect the rights and get to the original masters, which uh -huh. we, we finally did. Uh, because I think, the, I think the words are timeless and oh, by all means. patriotic. And uh, I'd love to, maybe we could talk about what, what we might be able to do with that to re-release it after the 50th anniversary uh, or for the 50th anniversary. Because uh -huh. I think the words are important. I think the words are important for the country. They're, you know, like, like a lot of John Wayne's films, however they, got, however they got those things written, you know, all the lines were little pearls of wisdom. And you watch the Cowboys, I mean, half the stuff in our store are quotes from, you know, sure. films that he said. And uh, they just help people uh, figure out how to make a, maybe a moral decision over a financial decision, a decision more for the long term than the short term, a decision for their own uh, self-worth and self-respect over quick gratification. Mm -hmm. And I think that was... Uh, that kind of thinking, at least in my experience, was more prevalent in the old days or in a more rural culture or uh, outside of the big city. I don't, know how, I don't know how to articulate it properly, but I feel it more in, in rural environments. You know, that album made a, a big difference to a lot of people at a time it was released, and we need it now more than ever. And, because and I often wonder, like you're saying, we need it now. I often wonder what it was like for the, for the country or the world as a whole to have a character that was on the big screen two or three times a year that helped you uh, understand how to make a better decision for yourself and for your community and for your country. 
because although we have terrific storylines and production values and ways to distribute these stories out to people now, I, I find like I, you like the character, they're, they're flawed in the beginning, but you like them, but by the third, fourth, fifth season, pretty soon I, I don't like who I'm in the room with anymore and I quit watching them. There's, there's nobody who lifts me up. Everything seems to be kind of headed down. You, you, do you understand what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're okay. talking about. And I think people are <coughs> John Wayne still and, and some of the older things because there is a good news in there. There is a good message in there. And throughout the history of the entire world, every society had heroes, people that made a difference in the whole society, not just in a particular locale. John Wayne was the last one of those we had. And before that, it might have been George Washington. But John Wayne made a difference. He, he said, I am America. This is what America is all about. And everybody believed him. Mm. And we were cohesive. You know, the things that make, make us cohesive are a set of values. Honesty and integrity, loyalty, work ethic, dedicated to family, convicted about your belief in God. And most importantly, to practice common decency and respect for your fellow man every day you live. That was his character. And everybody loved it. Everybody believed it. And we don't have anybody like that in our society. Like you said, we have people we look up to, say that that person is really a good person, but they don't affect the whole, the mm -hmm. whole society. The whole ecosystem. <clears throat> they don't give us a direction that's a positive effect. And I didn't appreciate that when he was my father and I was a young boy growing up and I, I really don't think I, I appreciated it. Well, I certainly didn't appreciate it as much every year. My appreciation for what he did grows and grows. And uh, I hope that somebody out there can bring back a character that, that has those qualities, those character traits, that value set that you just described perfectly uh, for people because as, as uh, you know, as, as as life gets busier for families and, and people get more disconnected, they need that message coming to them. Uh, and media is a, you know, a great way to get it to people. Taylor Sheridan, wherever you are, <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> Look, we have to work together. You know, we have to compromise. Not everybody has the whole answer. Right. And I, I love disagreements. I don't like arguments. But I like to see both sides of the story because that's the only way we progress. And we also only progress with excellence, not with mediocrity. Mm -hmm. And we celebrate mediocrity today. And instead of saying, hey, you can do better than that, they can say, well, bless your heart. You, you just fold right in here with everybody else. Mm -hmm. and, and don't give our young people enough incentive to say, hey, I am somebody special. God gave me a reason to be on this earth and gave me certain talents that can make a difference and I'm gonna use them. And that's what we need more than anything else is we need to stop you know, celebrating mediocrity and I think about excellence. I couldn't agree with you more and, and that's why I love athletics, I love martial arts because those are places where doesn't matter what you say, you gotta step out there and do something and that gives you your yardstick of, of how well you're doing. Yes. And it's, there's no cheating that. Or being a, you know, being a cowboy or having some kind of skill. People need that. We can't keep 
deluding ourselves that everybody is, you know, an expert in everything they're doing or talking about. You have to be proud of who you are, not you, not what you think you ought to be. But you have to work to get there. Yes, you do. Yeah, without the work, <laughs> you won't appreciate yourself. Well, that's, that's nice of you to say about my father. I feel that way, and like I say, every year, especially since taking over our family business, it, it's just, un, it's hard to comprehend the magnitude of the impact that that one man had on the world as a whole. I'm his son, I see it. You know, I sit down in Cedar City to have breakfast and there's his picture. You know, I mean, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. So, yeah, I hope we could get a character back like him. He's still making an impression. Huh? He's still making an impression. Oh, yeah. He's still a guiding light for so many people. How would John Wayne do it? Mm -hmm. Would John Wayne put up with that? How would he react to that? You know, that's, that's it, a real leader. It, and it's one thing that I loved about the Cowboys because, you know, I didn't have him for that long, but when I get to watch him interact with those kids, then it takes me back to things that happened between us and I can appreciate that time that I did have with them more and understand how valuable that truly was and what a gift it is to have that legacy on screen and all those stories on screen to be able to reference or look back to. But um, America Why I Love Her has always been something that I thought was important and should be out there in a, in a bigger way. I wasn't crazy about the orchestration that they did in the late 70s, it's a little, to me, some people like it, to me it, it's, a little bit hard to listen to it. <laughs> so I've always thought it might be fun if, you know, we could get somebody else who just maybe played an acoustic guitar and recited those poems. Because uh, I think the words are important. They are definitely important. So I'm gonna bend your ear about that after this. <laughs> okay. I don't, you know, was it Jonas Salk who got rid of polio, who got the polio vaccine? I uh, went to the hospital on uh, September the 6th of 1954. And in January 1st of 1955, the announcement was made that the Salk vaccine would be issued to every man, woman, and child in America. So polio was over with. Wow. And uh, just recently I was uh, having some trouble with my hips with bursitis and I'd gone to a therapist. And this young lady was in her, in her early 20s and she looked at me on my arm and she said, what happened, the bull fall on you or something? I said, no, I wish it was something that simple. I had polio. And she said, what's polio? And my immediate thought was how wonderful a young lady in her 20s doesn't know what polio was. We did a good job. Wow. It was a vaccine that worked. Yes. And I have all the faith in the world that sooner or later we'll find a cure for cancer. I hope so. No we'll doubt try to support mind, it. You know, there's another thing my father did. He has that incredible film legacy. And when he was dying, he looked up at the seven kids and he said, hey, use my name to help the doctors fight cancer. And so over the last 40 years, a lot of technology has been developed and a lot of surgical specialists have been trained 
and a lot of research has been done just because one guy said those words. Yes. So hopefully we'll get there. Three of the, three of the cast and the uh, cowboys overcame cancer. I had a melanoma cut off this cheek. I don't know if you saw the... Did you see me when I had the big scab over here? No. You didn't. Everybody in here in the stockyards thought I was a bull rider. I had this big black scab here. And I saw some other guys with, no, you ride bulls? I'm like, no, this was cosmetic surgery. <laughs> Close up the hole they cut out of my cheek. Anyway. Uh, when you switch from, well, you didn't really switch from music to poetry, but does poetry is it more inspirational or more uh, satisfying to write a poem or a song? It's a different discipline. And some, uh, I just spent the week with my friend Larry Gatlin and, and he loves my poetry and he said those, so some of those will make good songs. I never thought about them being songs because you have to encapsulate all your thoughts for a song. If you're gonna listen to something I sing, you, I have to get you in the first four bars or your mind drifts off, you don't hear the rest of it. So a hit record yet makes you wanna stay there the whole time. With a poem, you can tell a story and develop the story as you go along. I see. And you can have all kinds of subplots in there just like you do in movies. And it's a, it's a different discipline and I love it. I also love to write songs. And I had a great career as a songwriter. But uh, the poetry is, is awfully special to me. What do you like better, the guitar or the mandolin? Well, I've got to say the guitar. The guitar? Yeah. I used the mandolin to regain strength in my fingers because oh. they were just like pieces of spaghetti. And I learned by using two fingers at a time and concentrate on getting them strong enough to keep from muting the strings. I see. And so I played mandolin for, well, that's kind of like saying I play golf. I go out on the golf course and hit the ball, but to say I play golf is, <laughs> so to say I was playing a mandolin was not the right nomenclature because I was just making two-fingered chords. Hmm. Well, I, I hurt my leg and uh, <clears throat> had surgery and then got a blood clot and whatever, so I was sort of inactive for a while and I thought, you know, I'm gonna, might as well learn how to play the guitar. So I started taking guitar lessons every Sunday and I still do it. Not very good, but now that I'm playing the guitar, now I can hear the mandolin when it's in a song, and it's really, it's jumping out at me, and it's a sound that I really like. Yeah. So maybe, maybe I'll get over there. <laughs> and then I, I do jujitsu, you know, which is funny, and you know, you get banged up in it. Uh, and one day, jammed this thumb, but it didn't seem that big, but like instantly, you know, I'll use this to cover the the top string. It's very difficult for me to do it now because whatever I did, I've got no flexibility in this thumb anymore. And now I'm trying to be really careful that I don't mess up my fingers. Anyway. Uh, your connection, you're wearing the 4.6's vest and you were telling me some, some stories about how when you were a little boy you always wanted to, to be able to ride with the 4.6's and then in time, you've become close to the owners and have ridden there and become a part of it. In about uh, 1976, I went with uh, B.F. Phillips, who was married to Anne at that time, and uh, went out for the spring works. 
And then for 30 years, I made the spring works 29 out of those 30 years. Wow. Wouldn't stay out there but five or six days, but it was enough to indoctrinate me and, and really capture my imagination. And from that experience and letting me ride with the cowboys and ride good horses and know what a good horse is and, and work cattle and watch people who really are, are adept at their skills, uh, taught me how to authentically portray the cowboy, the American cowboy in song and in poetry. And that goes back to the time when I grew up. I would set up on top of that river bank and it was about 300 feet high. And it was a mile wide with a little stream of water about that wide, full of quicksand. Quicksand, so, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I, I learned that river country, but I could set up there by myself day after day and I'd see those teepees spread out down that, down that riverbed. So one day I was uh, fighting the white eyes with Quanah and the next day I was going up the trail with Goodnight to wow. Dodge City. Uh, my imagination ran wild and mother used to call it daydreaming, but I think it was crea uh, created an imaginative imagination in your mind. Yeah. And uh, so I credit that time period in my life with making me want to know more about the Western way of life. And then when I started touring as a country artist, I was out on the road 250 days a year, mostly in the Intermountain West <coughs> and the, the Great Plains. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, so I'd read all I could about the Indian tribes that were in that part of the world. And I'd see something about a ranch in Nebraska, and I'd read all I could about that ranch in Nebraska. And I studied all the other ranches. And then Ann and, and the manager at the time, J.J. Gibson, and later on his son, Mike, allowed me to come out there and they treated me just like I was one of the hands. And uh, then after Mike left, then Joe Leathers, who is the manager now, and I became very close friends. And I spent a lot of time with Joe and, and Louise. And uh, I just think they're the finest, finest people in the world. And I love that ranch. I've been in every pasture at some time or another. And uh, Ann Marion, who was the former owner, was as close a friend as I'll ever have in my life. Wow. And uh, she was married to one of the finest gentlemen the world will ever know, Mr. John Marion. And I just think the world of him. He's still around. But Ann's gone, and, and uh, I was a good friend with her mother. Big Ann, they called her. And so I have a lot of a lot of ties to the to the sixes. And uh, I've been doing the commercials for the horse division for quite some time now, and they're a sponsor of my radio show, Cowboy Corner. And we're in 34 states and 155 markets. Oh, that's great. After 29 years. Wow. The um, <clears throat> what was I gonna? Was gonna oh, it, it's amazing to me that. You know, those ranches started not that long ago. I mean, I was watching the searchers the other day, and it says, you know, Texas, 1869 or 1867 or something like that. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, man, in 1967, there's muscle cars. You know what I mean? In that 100 years, so much changed. Oh, for God's sakes, yes. And then... Uh, Reading that that book about uh, the Parkers and uh, you know sort of the what would you call it you know the struggle 
in that part of the world between Mexico, uh, settlers, uh, Indians, uh, even the French, uh, I guess were involved up, up mm -hmm. north a little bit. Um, just the, the, the hard for everybody, tough way of life. And so the settlers reign supreme at that point, and that's really when those, I mean, at what point did they, did they finish fighting, and then the government took the land and then allotted it to people, correct? In uh, 1845, uh, under President Polk, uh, Texas became a state. In 1845, mm -hmm. okay. And, uh, when she became a state, she retained all of her public lands. So then after the, the war, which wasn't very civil, but that's what we call it, uh, most of the white settlers in Texas were from the, the southeast. And the westernmost point of civilization in Texas was where Weatherford, Texas is now, wow. until 1874, when Quanta took his last 300 people into the reservation at Fort Sill. All of that was Camacheria. There were a few settlers and a few ranchers out west of Fort Worth, but not very many. And so there weren't any towns out there. So all that belonged to the state. And then the state used all that land instead of giving it to the federal government, like the rest of the states had to do. Uh, we used it for railroads, uh, for every uh, 19 miles of track, they gave them a section of land and then the, opened it up for homesteading. So my family left uh, Tennessee in 1870 and came to Texas because they had lost their farms in Tennessee on the courthouse square just to pay the taxes. But they knew there was land available here. I had a great uncle who had been here since 1856. So the rest of them came, both sides, mothers and daddies, families. And uh, that's, that's really what settled Texas. And then after uh, the Comanche and uh, the Southern Cheyenne and the Kiowas were all off of the Western Plains and up into Oklahoma, then the ranchers could go out and take as much land as they thought they could handle. And what they needed was good grass and water. Mm. So then later on, they could buy a section it was checkerboarded. You could buy one, you homestead one section, the rest of them surrounded you were owned by the railroad, so you could buy them from the railroad for pennies on the dollar. I see. And a lot of the big ranchers at that time would have their cowboys homestead some of those sections so that they could, they'd get them back as soon as that year was up that they had, had uh, proved up on them. And then later on, like, uh, Charlie Goodnight bought land up on top, up on the Cap Rock, up out of Paladier Canyon, for his cowboys who had, uh, who had helped him gather those acres contiguous. I mean, there were all kind of tricks, but yet the state owned the majority of the land, and the state still owns a lot of land in this mm. in this uh, state, and most of it has oil under it, so that endows our university system. So. That, that one thing of keeping our own public lands has been a great benefit to the people of the state of Texas. 
Texas is, you know, I grew up in California. My father moved down to Newport Beach when I was a little boy, and that's where I grew up, and that's where I've lived ever since. <clears throat> and that's where he lived. Uh, but when you come to Texas, there's a, a genuine attitude. There's a different feeling that you get, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a comforting and an energizing, it, it feels patriotic, feels, feels like you come to America, honestly, when you come to Texas. And they say the Pledge of Allegiance, and they sing the national anthem before the rodeos, and, uh, and everybody's so in competition, but they're still pretty supportive of each bet. other. And it's just, it's a, it's a good place, and it sets a good example for people. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, no, yeah. it's, if I notice it every time I come, and I'm, you know, family or friends that have come out who haven't spent a lot of time here are always, you forget, we used to do that in, in California at one time. And it, uh, it's nice to see it, it's nice to be a part of it. See, we were once a state, we were once our own country. And uh, there are people who would wish that we'd never let the United States join us. <laughs> <laughs> Especially today, I imagine. <laughs> The Alamo, were, were you around when he made the Alamo? Were you aware of it? Oh, I was aware of it, but I was not able to be there mm. or go down to Did you know some of the people that were involved in funding and financing? And No, not no? really. Okay. I, I probably do, but just not realize that they were a part of it. But, but a lot of Texans, you know, put up the money for that and yeah. helped make that possible. Uh, it was an important story to my father. He wanted yeah. that told. He wanted it to tell it well um you know those oil wells do a lot of a lot of good uh, <laughs> uh shanghai pierce said the most beautiful sight in the world is an old cow scratching her back on a moving pump jack because <laughs> it greatly reduces the severity of a drought <laughs> wow yeah no kidding how many acres of land does it take say out, out where the four sixes is for a you know cow probably 20 acres per animal unit 20 acres uh-huh you get on down towards the center of the state, down around Bryan College Station, uh, they can run a cow to the acre. And over in East Texas, where they get more rain, uh, they can sometimes run two cows to the acre, wow. depending on, on the year. But the farther west you get, the more arid it is. The, the, there are places in Texas, you'd be, it'd be tough to run a, a cow per a section year round. I mean, how could the animal even move that far to eat? You know what I mean? If it was that scarce. <clears throat> I drove last time I came here. I had to be in Utah for something, and then I thought, well, I'm just going to drive. So I drove from Utah, Moab, Fort Sumner, Austin, and then Fort Worth. Yeah. And from Fort Sumner to Austin, there's just not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I took the small roads, you know, took the yeah. smaller highways and enjoyed yeah. it. But it was still not a lot out there. It's people uh, that know how to manage the land and mm -hmm. utilize it. Like there's some country in, in Arizona that I've been in with friends that own pretty big ranches in Arizona. And you wonder what the cattle eat, but yet they survive just like the deer. But you can't bring cattle in from the outside and expect them to do well. They have to be native. I see. <clears throat> and so like in the, up in the high country and uh, <coughs> this big bend area, in Brewster County, up on the top of those lava bluffs, they they produce highland herefords, and they're really high quality uh, animals. But they developed in that 
in that up area. In that, in that area with the area. with the vegetation that's there available for them. So and you have all kinds of wildlife in Texas, elk and antelope and. Uh, we don't have any grizzly bears. We got some well, black bears. <laughs> you got black. Got black bears. I was gonna go down to Big Bend on my way home last time, but it was too hot. I had my dog, and he just—it's 110. He can't, you know, during the day he's kind of stuck. Yeah, well, that's <clears> a I'll, desert I'll ecosystem. So you have snakes and lizards and the things that occur in all the deserts across mm -hmm. the Southwest. But uh, the big game—at at one time this was a native home for elk. And we pushed them on up into the highlands. As time went on, what, where are the highlands? What do you call? What's that part of the state? Oh, up into New Mexico and okay, and uh, to the Chiricahuas and the All right. San Gabriel Cristos would be the closest to here. But they're plain. They were originally a plains animal, mm. just like the Thule herd in San Fernando Valley of California. I mean, the San Joaquin Valley of California. Okay. That was the home of the Thule elk herd. Wow. Down in the bottom. <laughs> I didn't know. I'm so sheltered being out there on the beach. I know a whole <laughs> different set of things. And so, you know, it's funny when you, if you're John Winson, you come to Texas, people think you know all the, the things. And I don't. <laughs> so, like, I think when we first met was back with Ben Johnson. Yeah. You know, and uh, who was a very nice man. I think you guys were close but I yes. was glad that I got to meet him as a an adult and uh, yeah he was a fantastic human being we raised a lot of money for cystic fibrosis in those days mm. and, and I remember when you started roping with us I'm sorry that must have been horrible oh, to watch. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> none of us were that good <laughs> you know I, I was around horses on the location but that'd be a you know a couple months a year so you'd get comfortable and then you were back at the beach or on the boat or doing something else and then uh, he had me show horses a little bit when I was a little boy, but it wasn't consistent. So by the time we got to those things, it was just, you know, <laughs> people must have looked and gone, oh, that's awful. <laughs> what an awful. That's awful. You had a, we all had a good time and we did it for a good cause. Yeah. And became a pretty large family. It, I really enjoyed it when <clears throat> I was there. That it, it doesn't carry over to to where I live that well. I guess there's some people that do it not too far away, but it's really all our vacant land has been built on. You have to go kind of far to, yeah. to do anything. Uh, well on horseback. Did you ever, have, have you ever heard of Pioneer Town? Have you ever been there? California? No, I Joshua so. Tree. So I guess it was uh, about 100 miles out of Los Angeles and that was the studio's limit on where you could get out of dealing with the studio somehow. And so Roy Rogers went out there and built a little Western street. And that's where they filmed his television show. And Was it's that near Joshua Tree. Uh, it's south of Barstow. There's a road that runs up to Barstow from there, but we're still down. Uh, Apple Valley? Below, keep going down. Apple. Basically very close to Palm Springs, but east. And as you go east, you, you come up. It's at about 4,500 feet, so it's much cooler. And uh, that little western town is still there. And it's become sort of a popular destination for car commercials and photo shoots. And there's one um, bar, restaurant, 
uh, honky-tonk that gets some pretty significant music in there called Pappy and Harriet's. And that's really all there is there. Um, so I didn't know if you'd, because when I watched the old Roy Rogers stuff, and we've got Trigger in the museum, yeah. uh, they keep riding down that main street, and all the little <laughs> places are still there. And, and they just opened up the Red Dog Saloon, which was the saloon in the TV show. They just reopened that. It's kind of a unique little place. I don't well, know if you'd, you'd gone there. No, I lived in the Sand Canyon. <coughs> Excuse me. I lived in the Sand Canyon area and close to the Disney Ranch. Mm. And uh, Steve Stone and I, uh, his daddy had a ranch. At that time, I thought it was a big ranch in Sand Canyon. And uh, I lived over the hill in a, in a little canyon. And uh, he would ride over there in the afternoon and after we got both offices in Hollywood, now, and the Hollywood Freeway at that time was, we could get back and forth to our office in 25 minutes because they opened up Highway 14 through the Beale Pass. And uh, so we'd and ride- And is out the 14, right? Yeah. By Acton, Canyon Country? Yeah, but back towards LA from there. Okay. Uh, it was, what is Canyon Country now, was wide open spaces when I lived there. And we'd ride up Placerita Canyon to Tex Williams' house and he built us a hitching post out on the creek. And we'd tie our horses up there and go sit on the back porch with him and listen to him tell stories and have wow. a drink of whiskey and ride home in the dark. That's pretty And neat. we thought we were living high. Yeah, no kidding. Did you like living in Los Angeles? I liked living out there. And I liked what I did. I was in the publishing business mm -hmm. and, and, uh, in Los Angeles, or in Hollywood, and writing songs and, and uh, had about eight writers. So I had a pretty good life. And at some point you just decided you wanted to get back to Texas? I just, no, <clears throat> I decided I wanted to be a singer. I see. Instead of just a writer. I see. And I started recording out there in, uh, I had the first release in 68 and the first really good record in 69. And then by 73, I moved to Nashville. I see. And I stayed there four years and figured out my bus could go north and south on 35 and east and west on 40, and I came home. That was 45 years ago. Wow. I never regretted it. Well, it's, it, I, you know, my father moved out of Los Angeles when I was a little boy, and I never really connected with it. I worked up there for a number of years and went back and forth countless times, but I never lived there. Um, and when I did, I uh, did some stunt work for uh, a good friend of mine, and he lived out in Canyon Country. So we would go out there, and it was, there were small ranchettes out there, but it was still open. And uh, I drove through the other day, and it's all built. Oh, yes. Yeah. But it was, it was quick, like you said. And I can remember in the day when, you know, the guy, the stunt guys lived in Silmar, and they could have horses and ride their motorcycles, and it was giant sand wash, and access to the hills and yep yeah that's all gone yeah, anyway I, I never I was never comfortable there so you know somebody like you who really grew up in a magnificent open country I don't know if it would be of interest to stay in Los Angeles not at all yeah and that's why I moved out to the Sand Canyon area mm. and uh, we could ride all the way to Castaic nearly Canyon country didn't exist it was just a, a couple of gas stations on in Solomon Canyon and a mm. A Mexican restaurant or two. So if I was five, 62, 67, 67, 68, my dad would 
put me on his lap and make me steer the car as he drove to Los Angeles. And we'd go up to five. <laughs> I don't know exactly where we went. But I can remember trying to drive that thing. And then every corner that would come up, he'd go faster, you know, make you nervous before you hit the corner. So I have vague memories of, of Los Angeles, and I can see how it's grown. And then my area's grown significantly. Texas has grown significantly. Oh, my goodness. I guess it's just population. Yes. Population. Folks moving here from other places. And um, how did the cowboy gathering start? <coughs> well, 32 years ago. <coughs> Excuse me again. Uh, a group of us gathered in the uh, uh, boardroom at the Cowtown Coliseum and decided that Fort Worth was the perfect place for a cowboy gathering. And it was started by two people who worked for the Extension Service, Jalen Burkett and John South. And they brought me and Don Edwards in to, as kind of um, consultants, I guess. And then before the first event, they asked me if I would lend my name to it. And two years later, they resigned or retired from the extension service and turned it over to me. And so uh, Hub Baker and Jimbo Calhoun and Steve Murren and I took over and put it on for 30 years. So that would have been around the time that we met. I might have met you just before that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I met you in the early or the late 80s. Yeah. With Ben Johnson. Mm-hmm. So you did that for a long time, and this is the last year? Or was last year the last year? No, I'm, I'm still involved, but I don't produce it anymore. It's I produced see. by the American Paint Horse Association. I see. But it's still called the Red Steagall Cowboy Gathering and Western Swing Festival. And it will still continue? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, great, great. Yeah, that. we started, uh, the first two years we had a, a scholarship program for unwed mothers. And they were all on, on welfare. And we gave away five scholarships a year. And those, all those women in that time period used that money to go to trade schools and every one of them got off welfare. Wow. So I couldn't continue that then when, when Jalen retired because she was in charge of that part of the extension service. So then we started our children's poetry contest. Then we got such good response from it. And then we expanded that and we had another fund for children of working ranch families. So far we've awarded over a million dollars in scholarships. Wow. And we don't care what those kids, we don't care where they go to school or what they go, they go, go to, to a trade to a trade school if mm -hmm. they want to, just so they get an education. Yeah. It, it seems like, and I've heard other people say this, that, and I think it's that short-term thinking because it, it just makes people race to the next stop and they don't have time to think about anything else besides hitting that number or getting that quarter done. But if we as a society could lift each other up rather than constantly. I heard Joe Rogan say this and it really resonated with me. You know, if, if you're on a team and there's a weak member of the team, everybody sort of has to gather around that person and lift them up and, and try to make them better. And that was sort of an, an analogy for the country. So for those people who are down and they don't have the opportunity that some other people did, uh, 
that the best way to, you know, to, to change that, to get them out of those terrible neighborhoods and, and is to provide opportunities like that where they can be educated and learn how to make their lives better. That you can't just, you can't just sort of blanketly say, oh, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get out there and do something. They, they need a little, we all need a little help and a little guidance and a little mm -hmm. coaching to get started. And it sounds like that's what your program did. I'm, I'm very proud of it. We have a couple of young ladies who have graduated from Harvard Law School. Wow. Uh, the first recipient of our scholarship for uh, poetry, uh, a girl from the east side of town who had, who's never had anybody in her family ever graduate from high school, much less go to college. And she took our scholarship program and uh, got a degree in electrical engineering. And so if nothing else happens in the rest of the time, those people have made a difference. And a young man that we helped go through the uh, ranch management school at TCU has uh, been the manager of the Pitchfork Ranch for quite some time, so. Wow, you're, you're giving them a life, you know? Because I can imagine, you know, if I, if I was born somewhere else in a different neighborhood, you only know your environment when you're little. You know, people say, what's it like to be Joe and son? It's, it's like being anybody's kid for a long period of time. It's just your dad. You have no idea whether he's a plumber or a movie star. It doesn't matter. You don't think about it. If I'd have grown up somewhere else where there wasn't opportunity or guidance or um, a level of maturity and information that helps you become a person who can be involved in society and, mm -hmm. and contribute, you're not. You know, and, and we can't expect these kids who are born in, in areas like that that don't have that opportunity to just do it by themselves. But by giving them that education and integrating them into the working part of the pro productive part of society, their psyche changes, their, their frame of mind changes. And I don't think you could do more for somebody who is in that position. That's well, pretty important. Uh, scholarships are very important. and and. For a student to know that that light at the end of the tunnel is not a freight train, that the really good ones will go on and utilize everything to their advantage instead of condemning everything that doesn't work. Mm. And so not everybody's gonna graduate from college. Not everybody's gonna be an inventor. Uh, will Rogers said that everybody can't be a hero. Somebody has to sit on the curb and wave at them as they go by. <laughs> Um, so, but if you give a, a person a chance and the ones that really want to succeed will succeed. And sometimes it just takes just that much to achieve something that big. Mm. So that's what scholarship programs are all about. And I'm very proud to be a part of it. We had, Gail and I have a program at uh, Texas Tech that is very productive for school uh, students in the uh, Ag Sciences Department. Well, and we'd like to hear more about that. Maybe we can help support it, too. We just started a new surgical oncology fellowship program with Texas Tech. John Wayne Surgical Oncology yeah. Fellowship Program to train Great. surgeons how to become specialists and do research. So we're really excited to be expanding that and yes. have it be here in Texas. That's wonderful. Yeah. And Tech has a new vet school. They do? Mm -hmm. School of Veterinary Medicine. When my father died, Somebody took me to the animal shelter and I ended up getting a dog, you know, within a year of my dad dying. 
and the guy who was the vet at that uh, uh, facility has remained a friend of mine to this day and uh, a couple years ago became he lives four doors down from me now great guy <laughs> great guy keeps my dogs alive all right so what's next for you what are you well i'm, I'm just still uh doing my television show on rfd and the cowboy channel this will be our 15th year and i love to do that how's it how do you see the cowboy channel affecting i mean we have we have shows like yellowstone that are embracing western lifestyle the cowboy channel seems to be rfd and the cowboy channel seem to be sort of home base for rural America. Nobody was doing that when Patrick started talking about rural America. And it was a, it was a great boon to the farming and ranching industry. Uh, I like to say something that our Commissioner of Agriculture says, said every once in a while you need an attorney, every once in a while you need a doctor, but three times a day, seven days a week, you need a farmer and a rancher. And we forget sometimes that we have the most unbelievable agricultural system in the entire planet. We have the most uh, quality, the most quantity, the most research, the most safety. Everything about our food supply is conducive to human life. And we produce enough food in our country to feed ourselves and a fourth of the rest of the world if we just cultivate all the cultivatable acres that we have. And so as, as time goes on, we get more and more uh, inventive with technology, but we also lose about 160 acres a day to urban sprawl. Because what a farmer and a rancher needs is good grass and good water. And that's what a city needs to grow, is good, good soil and good water. So it's, all, it's going to be a, a real test from here on. Water is going to be the common denominator. Mm -hmm. But we can't afford to import the majority of our foodstuffs from somewhere no. else because nobody will ever have to fire a shot down our streets to conquer us. All they have to do is conquer that country that's feeding us. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't have time to tool up again to save our population. Well, we really, you know, I think, I think a lot of people saw it during COVID when they realized so many things that we need are manufactured overseas and it you know when the supply chain is affected for whatever reason uh, uh, it it doesn't make sense to to have all that manufacturing capability overseas when we should have it here and i remember in uh when i first took over our family business you know you, we were seeing like a lot of these businesses close down in the states and, and be shipped overseas and it, you know, you just think like, well, how the heck is that going to work? Like, we need to have energy independence. We need to have manufacturing independence, and we need to have food independence. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, Orange County was beautiful agricultural land when I was a little boy. You know, you could smell the the orange blossoms, and you know, the the soil is just it's it's perfect, and it's completely covered by single family homes, apartments, yes. and shopping malls. And I, I just wonder, you know, at what point can you not do that anymore? Because I don't know how you get land like that back. You don't, because once, it's, once you destroy the, the organic value of the land, 
you can put all the chemicals back into it you want to, but you're not going to uh, you're not going to recover millions of years of organic material deposits mm. in the in the soil that's so productive. What do you think about you know the the soil depletion issue and how people are talking about you know maybe the need to rotate crops and have animals on it at the same you know at different times to fertilize the soil and work at what do they call it regenerative farming is that coming up I'm from California I live at the beach <laughs> so all, all I see is this either on what I pick up on RFD or you know watching documentaries well we're constantly looking for ways to to protect our soil mm. Uh, if you've ever flown over the Andes in Peru yeah. and seen all of that land all over those mountains that is just bare. Bare. Because for all these centuries, they have used up all the organic material that's in that soil. And those potato fields all over the side of those mountains won't grow anything. They won't grow grass. They won't grow trees. They won't grow potato plants anymore because they've utilized all of the fertilizer, natural fertilizer that was in the soil. Well, that happens in our, in our land also if we don't do crop rotation mm. or use uh, chemical fertilizers. But there's nothing wrong with chemical fertilizers. My goodness, they're, they're things we take out of nature. Uh, ammonium thiosulfate to increase the acidity or, or uh, something to deplete the uh, over acidic land to raise crops that don't require mm. that. But there's, there's a lot of ways we can control it, and there's nothing wrong with it. But we have people who think that when you inject something that's foreign, but it's not foreign, it's all naturally occurring right here in our country. I see. So the fertilizer we use, phosphates, that's decomposition from the marine life from millions of years ago. That's a, that's a natural thing. Sulfur is natural. So uh, sometimes I don't think that we do a good enough job of educating the public, but nobody really worries about where they're gonna eat anymore or what they're gonna eat because it's so readily available. And we import 30% of all of our produce, 60% of all of our citrus. Because just like Southern California and Southern Florida, those great citric orchards yeah. are no longer, they're covered up with houses. And so we have to get them from somewhere else because we're, uh, we're addicted to those things. Mm -hmm. And citric acid is very important in our diet. Mm -hmm. uh, things like corn, uh, which are native to this part of the world, corn evolved in the North and South continents. And so we continue to improve the, uh, the quality of the corn and the production amount of the corn. Same way with wheat, like right now, we're suffering. Nation, the whole continent is suffering because of what Russia has done to Ukraine. And nobody thinks that we, t we get 30% of the wheat that we use from Ukraine. Some countries, as much as 50 and 60% wow. of their food supply is dependent upon crops grown in Ukraine. So he's doing a terrible disservice to the rest of the world, not just to the Ukrainian people. Uh, we're sheltered. We can take everything for granted. Yeah. In 1897, William Jennings Bryan said, uh, burn your cities and save your farms and ranches 
your cities will recover as if by magic. But burn your farms and ranches and grass will grow in the streets of every city in America. Because if we can't feed ourselves, nothing else matters. We can have the finest technology possibly imaginable to man. We can have the most comfortable cars, the tallest buildings, the biggest armed forces. But if we can't feed ourselves, none of the rest of that matters. So I preach that all the time. Every time I do a public concert, I talk about our agricultural mm. community because it's our number one asset. And we've got to protect it. And uh, I give great credit to, to Patrick Gotts for bringing the ideas and, and uh, ideals of agriculture to the American people. As far as uh, rodeo is concerned in the Cowboy Channel, uh, Jeff Metters is a giant in my estimation. And he presents rodeo in a way that nobody else ever has because uh, before it's always been people who produced it for the, the show value of it, mm -hmm. not for the value of the sport itself. And he presents rodeo in the real way because he understands it, he likes it, he wants to protect the, the integrity of the sport. And so uh, Cowboy Channel and, and uh, RFD are doing a marvelous job for rural America because it's bringing people in the cities back to a rural life that they've forgotten about. That's great. We had we were lucky we had Jeff Matters last night helping us with the, the cowboy panel. And then uh, since I've met Patrick and and gotten more involved in things here, uh, you know, got to go to his farms in Nebraska and meet his brother and watch them grow corn, you know, uh -huh. go out when they're harvesting the the crop and uh, it's really interesting. Like it, it's um, I think it, I love that they're getting it out to people because when you start to look at it and you start to, I mean, I have a basic understanding of things, but it's interesting to me and I'd like to know more. Uh, my dad grew cotton, right? At some point, somebody gave him an investment in a bunch of land down in Arizona and it wasn't a great investment at first. And at some point he had to go down there and ask around like, who's the best farmer in the area? And then he went and had a meeting with this guy. His name was Lewis Johnson. and. Uh, they started working together and and really louis was a, a terrific friend of my father's you know a friend in business and a friend in life and uh, took care of him you know a lot of people would take john wayne as a partner and they might put the, the bad investments on his side and keep the good investments or for themselves but louis was a, a straight shooter and they had a great relationship and they grew a lot of cotton and raised a lot of beef over the years but it was it was, I was just too young to really understand what was going on there, and I wasn't there enough to be, to be involved in it, just periodically, every year for a month yeah. or two. But it was always something that, that I was curious about and interested in, so. Lewis was a great cattleman. Was he? Yep. Did you know him? I knew Lewis. And uh, a character. And, and I, mean, I, I remember as a little boy, he was a nice man to me, but a real character. Chomped on a cigar all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and Alice, yeah. I still see Alice occasionally. So do I. Yeah, Alice loaned us the station wagon that's in the exhibit. That's a, a car that my father had given to Louie uh, one Christmas many years ago, and, and obviously my father used the car when he was down there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they had that just like it was. <laughs> it was sitting there, and Alice let us put it in. She's great. Mm -hmm. I went to her 80th birthday party in Bridger, Montana. So anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 
when we watch the news and we see news on farming, it's typically not great news for farmers. Like the farmers are constantly struggling. And that doesn't seem like it's right. I wish I had an answer for that. <laughs> I, I wish that I knew enough about the, the uh, there, was, there was a time when well, I mean, farming it's legislation, was, it's prices, it's... Uh, yes, and other expenses that don't have anything to do with raising the crop. Mm -hmm. Insurance, for example, is just astronomical, but it's essential. Uh, the cost of fuel, the cost of machinery, all those things are just way over the top these yeah. days. But everybody's trying to make a dollar out of each part of it. Mm. And uh, sometimes I think that the, uh, the distributors and the manufacturers, the processors, get the biggest chunk of the, of the money and the producer is left behind. But also another thing too, we used to consider farming and ranching as ways of life. It was a privilege to, to be able to experience that way of life. And it still is, but it's a business. And you can't experience the way of life if you don't protect mm -hmm. it as a business. I, it, during COVID, I think a lot of people returned or looked for a more rural way of life. and I. I don't know, but I wonder if during COVID, more uh, families and people have gone back and embraced small farms and ranches. And well, I wonder if that might help that lifestyle thrive. Well, I can tell you some friends of mine who are in the real estate business are selling uh, lots, like two acre lots, as fast as they can design them and put them on the market. People do want to get out of the cities. They mm. want to get out of the congestion they want to feel like they own a part of the land and they can look out over their land, they can have a horse. They can look out over the countryside from the top of a hill and see still some open country. We do crave for that. Uh, what gets to me is people who want to move out in the country and then complain about the smell of manure from the horses <laughs> next door. That's doesn't make any sense to me. Well, but you know, two acres doesn't get you, doesn't get them producing anything. Again, no. it's almost like a subdivision, but at least it's, it's there's more space in there but uh you know as, as i'm watching documentaries and things i see documentaries on small farms or people trying to make a go of you know growing things and raising animals and uh it just seems like it's a it maybe it's a trend right now that that's coming back that may help that lifestyle a little bit because when i drive through texas and i go through those little little towns I don't see a lot happening in the town. And I wonder, like, was this town more active 60 years ago than it is today? Or is everybody just out working and you only come to town or the bank or the, the store once in a while? You know, as you're coming down 287 from Amarillo or... Yep. Well, let's take, for example, you've got a guy who uh, has a ranch that's 120,000 acres. There was a time it took 10 to 12 men to operate that ranch. And in, in the early days, you didn't have pickups and trailers. If you were gonna work your place, you had to do it with a, with a wagon and the remuda. And sometimes those cowboys stayed out 11 months of the year with that wagon. Oh. So they had families back in town that they had to support. And so there were more kids in the school, so the school could function better. You had merchants who were taking care of the needs of those people who lived in town. Then we got pickups and trailers and they don't 
if it's raining on the south end, you don't go down there today. You work another part of the ranch. And everybody comes back to headquarters at night. So you have a fewer number of people. You have the needs are have changed. The insurance agent can do it all with a computer. So mm. instead of staying in a small town, he moves to a bigger town where there's a bigger market for it. I see. Uh, the kids don't stay there because there's no real place for them to work and to get back into society. Mm. We suffer all the time in the big cow country finding people who are qualified to operate a line camp or because uh, some of those line camps have 20, 25,000 acres they're responsible for. That's a good chunk of land. Yeah. And if you're going to raise your family out there, then they, sooner or later you're going to have kids and they've got to go to school. So the wife wants to be in town where she doesn't have to drive so far to get the kids to the school. So everything changes. Um, technology and, and equipment has changed the lifestyle, but it's still a lifestyle. Mm. And those people who continue to live on the ranches and on the farms love every bit of it. But like a lot of people will tell you, I have to have a job in town to afford to farm. I see. So I it's see. just a matter of, of the way our life has changed and our needs and our desires have gone different directions in, uh, than our forefathers had. Mm. Well, I'd sure like to know more about that rural lifestyle. I'm going to find out about this year or next year. Um, thanks, Red, for coming out and talking to us and listening to my dumb questions. Ethan, I can't tell you how proud I am to be here and what a great pleasure it is for me to spend time with you and talk about things we both care about. And uh, I'm just, I'm proud to be here and proud well, of what you're always, doing. You've always been there when I've been introduced to the Western lifestyle and I always feel a little bit intimidated that I don't know as much as maybe I should representing the brand that I came from. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't have it. So uh, you've always been nice and kind and sort of helped me through stuff. And I appreciate it. Well, I, anyway. I treasure your friendship. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the John Wayne Gritcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like what you heard, give us five stars in the Apple Podcast app and follow us on social media at John Wayne Official. Slap some bacon on a biscuit and let's go!